look at some of these pictures and your hair stands on end thinking about, my goodness, what are you actually looking at? We can look out and see pages and verses of the book of nature, uh, which is written by God just as much as the book of scripture is. And we are discovering how the universe works and what God's handiwork is in it. And uh, we should we should always keep in mind, though, what, what the big picture is. For. Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. This is part two of my delightful conversation with astrophysicist Dr. Tim Hamilton about his recent discovery of an unusual object he found while looking through images taken from the Hubble Space Telescope. On part two, Tim goes into the details about what it is he and his colleagues think the object might be. But this discovery, as Tim suggests, though a small one in the bigger scheme of things, does once more bring us face-to-face with the remarkable intelligibility of the universe. Why is it we can make such discoveries in the first place? Why do such discoveries excite us and stir the scientific community to write papers, articles, and books about them? Consider over 400 years ago, on a wintry night in 1609, the excitement Galileo experienced when he became the first to see the planet Jupiter through his newly made telescope. His description of the magnificent sight sounds like it came right out of the pages of a fairy tale. It was in early January that Galileo tells us, quote, At the first hour of the night when I inspected the celestial constellations through a spyglass, that Jupiter presented himself, end quote. Galileo believed the presentation to be innately personal, nothing less than an unexpected gift from God to the astronomer himself. Quote, I infinitely render grace to God that it has pleased him to make me alone the first observer of an admirable thing, kept hidden all these ages, end quote. As he proclaims in the opening of Sidereus Nuncius, Quote, I propose great things for inspection and contemplation by every explorer of nature. Great, I say, because of the excellence of the things themselves, because of their newness, unheard of through the ages. End quote. This comes from Galileo's book, The Sidereal Messenger, or Sidereus Nuncius, and it is but one example of how our fascination with the gloriously legible universe never gets old. Over four centuries later, here is Dr. Tim Hamilton inspecting the wonders from a telescope that orbits the Earth at some 300 miles above us. What would Galileo have said of the unbelievable fantasy-like images Hubble has taken over the course of the last several decades?
And as Galileo and others have said, God has written two books, one of creation and one of Scripture, and they are to be read together. As the psalmist notes, quote, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them, end quote, Psalm 111.2. And in Psalm 147, we read that the Lord, quote, heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the numbers of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite, end quote. And in Psalm 148, we read, quote, Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens, end quote. Creation rings forth with the praise of its creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. On this episode of Good Heavens, come and see how Tim's discovery is a part of this celestial symphony of praise to our Lord, Creator, and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we begin part two, I asked him to get into the details about his exciting discovery. I would like to talk about your uh, discovery that you mentioned at the top of the broadcast, um, how it came about, how you saw it, what it is. And, um, you know, kind of, because you sent me the picture over Twitter and I was like, Ooh, (laughs) (laughs) that's really cool. But let me, let's, let's, let's chat about that for a little bit and, and talk about um, what we're seeing. Um, And check me if I'm wrong here, but it's so that data came from, already existing data that Hubble had downloaded. Is that correct? This had been in the archives for some time? Uh, well, the picture I sent you is a, is a mix of things there. So um, I'll back up a little bit. It's um, uh, uh, Anton Kokomor uh, and uh, Carolyn Vilforth and a few others and I uh, had, who were part of the, uh, we're, we, we worked together in a collaboration called Candles, C-A-N-D-E-L-S. The misspelling is intentional. It's, um, let me think here, a cosmic assembly of near-infrared deep line emission line survey. I, I kind of always forget exactly how that – it's yeah, I know it's a, it's a <laughs> long acronym. But anyway, uh, it, this is a big collaboration, and we've got everybody from uh, 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 stellar astronomers, uh, supernova guys, to us galaxy people. And so we, a few of us, uh, Carolyn and Anton and, and the others and I, had um, gotten together on a side project. And we were wanting to understand how the, um, uh, I'll explain here about quasars. So this is what I'd started off my uh, working on as a graduate student, and I still do a bit off now. Mm-hmm. Uh, quasar is a, a type of what's called an active galaxy or active galactic nucleus. Nucleus meaning the center. Mm-hmm. We understand now that pretty much every galaxy of any real size has a massive black hole at the center. Really, we call them supermassive black holes. Supermassive is the technical term. Um, We kind of run out of superlatives in astronomy, though, pretty quickly. (laughs) And we just start up. There are black holes, and then there are supermassive black holes. Well, what if there's something bigger, (laughs) super-duper massive or, you know, extreme? Well, it's like the deep Um, fields. It's like uh, deep field, extreme deep field, ultra deep field. (laughs) Yes, yes. And so, um, well, anyway, so in most galaxies, like the Milky Way, that massive black hole sits there and minds its own business. Uh, we have a, what is it, a three to five million 
solar mass black hole at the center of the Milky Way, meaning three to five million times the mass of our sun. Mm. Uh, measuring things in solar masses, the mass of the mm-hmm. sun, is a useful unit. Uh, and we, we do a lot of calculations in, in metric, admittedly, but we make a lot of use of what are called natural units. Sure. Uh, Jupiter masses or solar masses, uh, light years, you know, things like that. <clears throat> Because why are we going to measure this thing in like grams? You know, that, that would be kind of inconvenient. <laughs> so big. It is literally. It would be uh, light grams or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, this one, ironically, is heavy grams. But, uh, um, but anyway, the. Um, uh, no, I, I got the reference like light years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the. Um, so anyway, the Milky Way's uh, central black hole is just sitting there. And occasionally there's a little gas cloud that gets too close and it goes burp and swallows it up and you get a little flash of light. But basically it's, it's inactive. But on the other hand, in a small percentage of galaxies, for some reason the nucleus, the central black hole there, is actively swallowing gas clouds. And as they fall in, they don't just fall straight on in, that everything is kind of rotating and orbiting around, right? So you've got a whirlpool of gas. You've got it, and it flattens out into a disk like um, rings, like Saturn's mm-hmm. rings around Saturn. And so you have this uh, uh, flattened out disk of gas uh, in a ring shape orbiting around the black hole, and it will uh, spiral inwards uh, by various means. We don't need to get into the physics, but you get this friction. The inner part of that, of that disk close to the black hole is orbiting very quickly, like Mercury going around the sun very quickly. The gravitational pull is stronger, so it accelerates quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas the outer parts of the the gas cloud are moving more slowly because the gravitational force is weaker, like Pluto goes very slowly around the Mm -hmm. sun. Now, the planets of the solar system, they're free to move at different speeds because they've got all this empty space between them. But in a continuous gas cloud, you've got a high-speed wind rubbing up against lower-speed winds, Mm. and you've got friction. And so this friction heats up the gas cloud, and it glows. And it doesn't just glow red hot, although the outer parts are cool enough to glow only red hot. It glows red hot and orange hot and yellow hot and white hot and ultraviolet hot and X-ray hot. And so we get this broad spectrum of all the colors of the rainbow and then some coming out of this. And that's what powers a quasar. That's this bright Mm. spot of light which um, was discovered, in fact, in a way co-discovered by one of my graduate um, uh, committee members, uh, Cyril Hazard. And um, uh, they were looking at radio sources in the uh, Cambridge University catalog of unusual, just radio thing uh, emission out in the sky back in the 1950s and early 60s. And, um, but they didn't know what they were. Many of them, some of them, they knew what they were. And you look at this and you just got a blob because the radio telescopes didn't really give you a good resolution, a sharp picture back there. Right. And so, um, well, what is the source? You look on the st- on the sky map and you see a whole lot of things that could be giving off that blob of, of radio emission. Well, Heath realized, well, look, one of these on the list is going to be passed over by the moon uh, three times over the next year and a half hmm. or so. And we know where the edge of the moon is. And so once it covers up the source, the whole emission, even if it's a very blurry look through the radio telescope, it'll just cut out like that. And we can just draw on the map where the edge of the moon is. And then when the moon uncovers it, it blinks back on again. And we can draw that edge. And then those two crossed edges will make an X marks the spot. Oh. And uh, he did that. And um, 
anyway, he was able to identify the first quasar at that time. They, they went back and they realized afterwards that they had also been able to see another quasar a year or two earlier, but they didn't realize it at the time, I think. Well, anyway, so Cyril Hazard identifies this quasar. So quasar, they didn't know what was doing it. And they looked and it looked like a, a moderately bright, uh, to the telescope anyway, blue star. And with a little fuzzy jet of something coming off the side. And so this was considered a quasi-stellar, meaning star-like in shape, mm. meaning an unresolved dot, mm -hmm. a quasi-stellar radio source or quasar. So this is one of those cases where an acronym has actually gotten to be a word. And um, after they called them radio stars for a while, and finally they realized that these were actually distant galaxies once they, they got the redshift and found out how far away it was. Because the universe expanding, you can measure distance from the redshift. Quasars are, well, let me just uh, yeah. interject, the quasars, if I understand them correctly, they are, a majority of them, if not all of them, are super, they have really large redshifts. That means they're very distant from us. Yes. Is that, is that yes. standard across the board for all quasars? Yep. Uh, some of them are, well, depends on who you're asking as to whether it's a big redshift or not. Sure. Um, and we, we've actually had kind of a discussion about this on some uh, astronomers discussion groups recently. Like, what do you consider high redshift yeah, versus right, right, low right. redshift? Uh, by the standards of um, 1963, when uh, Dr. Hazard had identified the object 3C273, the third Cambridge radio survey, 3C, object number 273, all right? When uh, he'd sent the location over to Martin Schmidt at, um, oh, which telescope? Uh, in California, and I'm not going to say because I, I forget which one. Uh, Schmidt had gone to the telescope and had gotten the redshift and found it was at a redshift that was higher than any other known one. And a new version is 0.1. Five, eight, so let's say 0.16. And, and you'll get different measures. We'll get you slightly different results on that. Uh, but anyway, so that is, that was at the time the most distant object in the known universe. It expanded the scale of the known universe immediately. This is, uh, I'm looking up here, 2.4 billion light years wow. away, which means we're looking backwards in time, you know, that, that, that far there. Um, roughly, there are some other little uh, scales and things there to do in cosmology. But basically, over 2 billion light years away, so we're looking backwards in time about that much. So they understood that it was a very powerful thing. It couldn't be a single star, right? It would just be too, it would have to be too big and too bright to give off so much light that we could make it out from yeah, that distance. Yeah, immensely powerful. Yeah. And so the idea that uh, after some years they, they settled on black holes accreting, or meaning uh, sucking mm -hmm. in gas as the, the power source for these. So the question then was, well, is there a galaxy around this, or is it just a, a naked quasar, a bare black hole with a gas cloud there, and that's it? And we really didn't know for a long time. And I remember as a kid seeing the debate on whether quasars are associated with galaxies at all. Mm. Uh, it was a big thing. In fact, even when I was in graduate school, um, the, uh, one of the first things they did with the Hubble Space Telescope uh, in 1994, just after its first repair mission, uh, what was that, December of 1993, uh -huh. uh, your, your, your listeners may remember that the Hubble was launched. They opened it up to great fanfare. This is my freshman year of college. And it was blurry. <laughs> the, the mirror, the main mirror, which is two and a half yards wide, 
this is not an interchangeable part. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we, we designed this thing so the astronauts could go up there and could ship in, um, uh, swap out cameras and things like that and some of the optics and put in new electronics and things, but not the big mirror. Uh, way too big to do that. Well, there was a lot of egg in the face of a lot of people over on the, uh, uh, in the fabrication process there. They had not ground it to the right shape. And um, what they figured out was, though, that if they, if they observed enough uh, stars, little pinpoints of light, and they understood how the light was blurring out, this is, this is called the diffraction pattern of the wave pattern of the light making the little ripples as it hits the camera, they could figure out how, what was the mistake in the shape? It's really fantastic that you can do this at all. The, opti- mm-hmm. the optics guys are just, it, I love that, that field. I just wish I did more with it. And they figured out, they, they wrote a program to do the modeling and so on like this. And then uh, they made what was called COSTAR, C-O-S-T-A-R, which is, again, an acronym because everything in NASA and everything more generally in astronomy these days is an acronym. Yeah. Uh, corrective optics, something or another, something or another. And they could put it in not to replace the main mirror, but to just add an extra reflection as it comes into the main camera that undistorts it. And it works so well. I had heard it was even better than they had originally planned. Um, So anyway, they get that. And one of the first projects that goes on in in 94, 95, and so on is um, uh, uh, to look at quasars. And to tell whether they had galaxies, and so mm. and the quasars that were picked turned out to be have relatively faint galaxies, and so it was still an ambiguous question for a while through the mid '90s. Well, by, I, by the time I'm starting uh, doing my research work in 1997, I'd switched from particle physics back into astronomy. Um, it was just ripe. I mean, you were just starting to get these pictures coming in of quasars showing the galaxies. Now. Wow. And uh, we, we started to understand that, no, these are actually pretty powerful. These are not only galaxies there, but they are big galaxies. And um, <clears throat> so anyway, in, so what is it that triggers this quasar activity when you can have most galaxies where the black hole just sits there? And we've started to understand that, well, in some cases, you get collisions, mergers between galaxies. And that can funnel a bunch of gas that dumps it down to the black hole when normally let's take a simplified case like the Milky Way, you've got the stars and the gas clouds orbiting in the Milky Way are moving in more or less circular orbits around the center, Mm -hmm. like we are. And the black hole will almost always be found in the center, and that's because of some dynamical friction, it's called, and that kind of drags it to the middle. But these other things will just kind of orbit around in empty space, so they don't go near the black hole. And so... The fact that there's a black hole there doesn't suck things in from outside. So you've got to have something that disturbs the orbits to funnel the gas down there. A galaxy merger will do that. And we're still debating to what extent mergers are responsible for them. We do think they are in some cases. But there are other, but there are other cases where we pretty clearly see that there's not any disturbed shape to the galaxy. It's, it's a fine galaxy that's not been run into, at least not recently. And it's got a quasar. So in some cases, it's going to be that the, you get an instability in the 
orbits of them uh, from one part of the galaxy pulling on another. Mm. You can have bar shapes in galaxies. Yeah. Like the Milky Way has what's called a galactic bar. It's a barred spiral. And this can make more complicated orbits of stars and gas clouds that can bring stuff into the center mm. there and can fuel that black hole. So you have uh, you were working with, um, as I understand from our exchange on Twitter, you're, you were working with um, doing research in on quasars recently and, and run across this shape, yes. correct? Right. And I'm sorry that I, I went off on that tangent there. I'd kind of forgotten what we were getting to. Oh, no, that was an excellent background. Uh, that's fantastic. Not a problem at all. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we had this. Uh, so uh, uh, Carolyn and Anton and the others and I had um, had this uh, project where we got some time on the Hubble and we were looking at what are what do the galaxies look like that host quasars at a redshift of like 0.7? Now, redshift, uh, it's called Z. Mm-hmm. It is very roughly uh, the ratio of how fast a, uh, uh, a galaxy is moving away from us as space expands mm-hmm. divided by the speed of light. Now, that, that works out to redshifts of like 0.2, 0.3, right. okay, where you're moving at a third the speed of light. Uh, when you get up beyond that, the formula is really more complicated, so that's, that approximation doesn't quite hold. But anyway, that's, the higher that number is, the farther away it is, and the faster it's moving. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, at a redshift to 0.7, uh, we wanted to see, we've, we've looked at nearby quasars, and that's what, you know, how far away is, is, is nearby. Um, 3C273 is this kind of Nowadays, we might consider it to be low redshift for quasar-type stuff. Um, you get up to 0.5 or so on. That's higher redshift. Now we're looking at 0.7. Some of these people have seen red sh- uh, galaxies and maybe quasars at like redshifts of 6, mm. hole number 6, which is getting very far away. But you can't see the galaxy very easily when it's that far away. It's pretty faint. So 0.7, we could see that. We could, we could image that. And we got a bunch of quasars with that there. And... Um, so I'm running, I'm running the, um, um, uh, the software in order to try to make a model of the shape of the galaxy and to remove that point source of light, which is so small. It's so small right around that black hole, and yet it emits so much light it can make a glare that outshines the entire rest of the galaxy. Wow. And so this is a problem in trying to see what the galaxy looked like. It's just lost in the glare sometimes. So anyway, we get this out here and, and looking at them, and well, look. The thing that I want is a few pixels across in the middle of the picture. And we've got, you know, hundreds of pixels across on the side here. And so you've got all this other stuff that's not what we're looking at, but, you know, it's there. And so I'm, I'm just having fun. I'm kind of looking at all these pictures. And you see galaxies all yeah. over the place. And in one, I notice that there's a bunch of galaxies in the upper left-hand half of the, of the picture well outside of the quasar we're looking at. And I start to realize, you know what? That's more galaxies than we're used to seeing. I think that's a cluster of galaxies. Mm. Well, that's pretty cool. I found, and I looked on, on, on um, some existing maps, and there was, it was not a known cluster. We, we'd found one. Mm. Wow. Uh, it barely shows up in the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, but it had not, it's off on the edge and had not been cataloged by anybody at that point. Uh, now it has, and people have found it and, and, uh, and added it to catalogs. As I'm looking through that at all the just the different shapes of the galaxies there, and I see these straight lines. Uh, well, that's odd. And I look, and there are two blobs, uh, kind of symmetrical there, left and the right one or the upper and the lower one are about the same uh, shape. And then there are 
three parallel lines that it's kind of like looking at a jeep coming at you with the two headlights mm -hmm. and you see the upper and the lower edges of that of that uh, uh the grill and mm -hmm. so on there mm -hmm. and that's what it looks like and uh well, that's not a shape you normally get there and so um show that to carolyn and anton and the rest and like what is this thing and um kind of the first thoughts were well you know if you've if you've heard of Planetary nebula, nebulae, plural, nebulas. Uh, these are gas clouds uh, shed off by stars as they're aging. Mm -hmm. Low mass stars as they age. The sun will eventually do that itself, in fact. And we classically thought of these as being very uh, spherical in shape. Right. And so we see them as often as a ring shape. In fact, there's a, a prominent one you can make out with a small backyard telescope called the Ring Nebula, yep. which is exactly In the this. constellation of Lyra. I keep meaning to go out and see it tonight. There's no moon. I'm going to look at it. I have still never seen it myself. Oh, okay. And I, it, it's a fairly easy backyard it target. Is. I've just never it done is. it. It is. Anyway, so you're on, you're on, uh, you've seen this, this Jeep grill, which is a yeah, completely right, right. Uh, aberrant sort of thing that you would expect to see something that's more spherical in nature, not square and rectangular, right? Right. And, um, but, but we have seen, there, there's a collection of pictures taken with the Hubble of protoplanetary nebulae, which is a, I don't do work on that, so I hope I'm not misspeaking, but I think it's an early stage in the development of a planetary nebula. And there are some weird shapes. There are some that have what look like jets coming out. If you've seen Top Gun, um, it was my first date movie, by the way, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> Uh, the beginning of Top Gun is they're doing the, the uh, catapult launches off of the aircraft carrier. And this, this fantastic scene as it's kind of, it's, uh, an early, it's early morning in the Indian Ocean and you see the, it's misty and it's dark and you see the steam from the, from the, the catapult kind of drifting over and you've got that, that quiet music playing. And then you see the afterburner come on as the pilot uh, uh, punches up the throttle and hits the afterburner in preparation for launch. And then uh, uh, highway to the danger zone comes yeah. on and they do the launch. All right. The shape of the, of the uh, exhaust gas is coming out of that F 14 engine with the afterburner on. It's what some of these look like. Oh, that's a good description. And you get nearly parallel lines with a, with a slightly tapered cone kind of coming back together. It kind of looks like what the, uh, the aerospace engineers call a mock uh, mock diamonds, which you'll see in rockets as they're, as they're launching up, and you get these kind of shock waves coming through the exhaust gas. It's very bright. And they're, they're protoplanetary nebulae that look like that. It looks like the afterburner off of a jet or of a rocket taking off. And it can make almost parallel lines. And so we were thinking, well, maybe we found a planetary nebula, right? And so we look up, and we kind of we find the direction in space. And the thing is, it's not in the the disk of the Milky Way where you expect to find these planetary nebulae. It's off like more or less perpendicular where we're looking out of the Milky Way. Mm. And so we're, we're, we're writing up a paper on this and thinking, all right, if this is a protoplanetary nebula, all right, here are, the, here are the magnitudes, the typical brightnesses of these things. How does this compare? And it's a lot fainter. Mm. We think, well, if this is a planetary nebula, it's way outside the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. 
well, that's pretty cool because that's not where you expect to find them. So we're getting excited on this. And then we realize that it's in a direction where it could be in one of these what are called stellar streams that are dwarf galaxies, meaning tiny little galaxies, that's being stretched out gravitational tidal forces uh, by the Milky Way's gravity into a long kind of a rope circling around the Milky Way. A number of these have been discovered over the past couple of decades or so. And it might be in the direction of one of these, which would mean, whoa, this thing is uh, protoplanetary nebula, you know, how many uh, millions, billions of years uh, on that would be. Is this the right age for any of that to even exist right then? So we're kind of excited writing this up. Um, but we, we can't get it quite to work out. And we think, all right, well, we're just going to – this doesn't look right, and it's not in the direction of the stream that we had thought it was, and so we, we kind of drop that. And we're asking around other, other colleagues, like, what could this be? And is it a gravitational lens? I mean, that could explain the symmetry, right? You get something uh, with a, a very thin symmetry, and it can make what almost look like mirror images of each other of a distant galaxy left and right. Mm-hmm. But you see, you, you will often see the galaxy in that case that's doing the lensing, the gravitational pull that will do this mm. because it's closer to us. And in this case, we don't see anything in the middle. Furthermore, it would have to be unimaginably thin. Paper, I mean, I'm exaggerating, paper thin, but thinner than we could make out in the picture to exist. Well, what can, you don't get galaxies that are just pancake thin like that. Maybe a, a spiral galaxy viewed edge mm-hmm. on but it had to be a big spiral to do this. This is still weird. And there's some of the lines that just are in the wrong shape. A friend of mine had said, you know what it could be. And he says, I'm not saying for sure, but a, um, um, a cosmic superstring, which is this hypothesized thing that could be a remnant of the beginning of the universe that would create, it would be this you know, light years, many light years long thing where space and time kind of warp around it. I, I don't know enough of it to say beyond that. And if they was existed, they would make very, they'd be very thin and they would make gravitational lenses. And he said, maybe you've seen one of those. Not that you want to stick your neck out too far on it because that's still mm-hmm. kind of controversial. I had at least one friend say, I'm not saying it's aliens. <laughs> but it's aliens. But <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had... Um, Going History Channel on you there. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it was not entirely, completely saying that it might not be, that, but maybe it is. Uh, and I had a, another uh, colleague who had said... I. Tim, you've, you've caught the Hubble. You've, you've caught the International Space Station. Look, the, here you can make out the solar panels on this thing. And I said, well, you know what? That does look like the, the International Space Station. But I went and I checked. We'd taken nine pictures, nine exposures that we combined together over the course of like 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. You take short exposures and build them up in one deep exposure. This way, cosmic rays that come by, you can clean them out because they'll appear in one exposure but not on the other. And you don't over, you don't saturate the image because once you get something that's too bright, if you over, if you overexpose it, then you just lose the data. Right, the right, so right. Short. And in the 50, whatever, 54 minutes that we'd taken these nine exposures, it didn't move. It, it was no more, it was less than a pixel of motion, which was the smallest I could make out. It had not moved. If it were the space station or even a geostationary satellite, it would have orbited enough in the space of an hour that yeah. it would just be drifting across the field of view and it didn't. So this is way outside of us. Had you guys thought of... Uh... I don't know. I'm, of course, I'm not in your field, so this is a this is a layman's wild guess. Yeah. A, a dart on the wall. 
maybe you've captured dark matter lensing. Ooh. Well, we expect uh, dark matter does do, uh, we know that dark matter does do lensing. Right now, our understanding of the dark matter lensing is, is that it's, um, it's fluffy. And so it would not, make, well, hang on a second, hang on. It wouldn't do what's called strong lensing by itself, you know, cloud of dark matter. It would make a very, kind of be a big blob, and so it would not make a, a really tight, compact source for it. However, what we finally came around to, you know, it may have been a while before I showed it to Anton, even though he was on the paper that we went, mm-hmm. uh, where we did the observations for this. But he's working on this other project, which is looking at um, galaxy clusters. And he said, well, you know, in this project, we found a number of uh, gravitational lenses formed by the cluster itself, not by any one individual galaxy in the cluster, but the entire collection of what hundreds of galaxies or how. Yeah, many. you know what's interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt him because no, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I don't see the wider picture that you guys see, but if you take the if you take the Jeep analogy, where you've got the hood of the Jeep, the headlights, and the bumper of the Jeep. It looks like there's slight curvature on the bumper and slight yeah. curvature in the line that would make out the hood line. And then you have the headlights. And, and to me, it, I, I initially when I saw it, because I've seen other lensing pictures, it looks like, as we, what you just said, that, that there's two clusters here. One's lensing, just the cluster itself. One is lensing one, and you have another cluster lensing another and these are these these overlapping cluster lenses have created this squishy line, but there is a slight bend in these lines that looks like they could be part of a larger curvature. We just don't have all the ample data for. You know, if we had, and what we need for that is uh, more data, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Or, uh, a lot. Well, but in the strictly a longer exposure, right? Yeah, because that could be very faint. Um, in looking around, since I put this together, I've been able to make out little. Th- even thinner wisps of things, which are certainly lensed images. Mm-hmm. I, should, I should make a distinction. The lens itself is the foreground, the closer yes. by object, whose gravity bends the light around. Right, right. The lensed object uh, is the thing in the background which emits the light. And uh, sometimes when we're, when we're talking, we can be a little bit sloppy with those, and I have been. But the uh, Sometimes we say the lens when we really are talking about the lensed image. Yes, yes, yes. I'll try to be a little more careful. So the uh, there are more, a few more lensed images that I can make out around there just from their incredibly stretched out shapes. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, is that with a lot of uh, lensing, uh, you've got strong lensing and weak lensing. Mm-hmm. So strong lensing will distort the shape of the background object. Weak lensing will maybe shift the position a bit, or it might make a galaxy that is uh, even spiral. Uh, spiral galaxies and elliptical galaxies generally have a, an elliptical outline, right? an oval outline, the outer edge. Well, which way is it, is it tilted? You know, uh, Up and to the left, uh, up and to the right maybe, or horizontally or vertically, or some angle in between. Well, you don't know a priori. You don't know from the beginning which way it should look. And the weak lensing can simply make it tilt at a slightly different direction, mm. but otherwise it looks undistorted. And you won't know that it is being lensed unless you had a reason to expect it to be pointing the other way. Right. So there could be a lot of lensing that we're just not catching. Mm. So 
from a single black and white image, we had taken an infrared picture, one filter, and all, all professional astronomy is done, well, if you're taking photographs, all, all of that professional astronomy is done with black and white photos. When you see the color pictures, it's because we put different colored lenses, uh, uh, filters, in front of the camera, and we've taken something that is redder, something that is bluer, maybe something in between, which we might consider to be green, even if it's like ultraviolet, infrared, and yellow, all right? But we could have our short wavelengths, the bluer ones, medium, could be called green, and our long wavelengths we'd call the red filter, uh, or the uh, when we put it together to make a full-color picture. But that having that color information tells us a lot more. So we had only taken a black and white picture with a, uh, an infrared uh, filter. So we had no color information. And so for a long time, that's all there was. This is the only picture that existed of it. It didn't show up in the ground-based pictures and not, not any way that you could make out more than a little uh, faint, noisy blob, and that was it. Until uh, another team had gone through and uh, had uh, seen the, the cluster. They were interested in clusters and had seen the cluster in the archives from our, from our picture, and they took some more uh, for this cluster. And so now... Now we've got their, their different filters, and we can combine all of this together to get a great color information. Mm. Well, now if you use the color, all of the lensed images from this source, whatever that source really is, we, we think it is a spiral galaxy in the distant universe, uh, should have the same color. And if most of the galaxies in the cluster that's doing the lensing appear more or less yellow to orange mm-hmm. in, the, in the way that I've combined those black and white pictures, mm-hmm. Then you can uh, you can anything that has that color you can just throw it out. It's it's not the lensed image that you're looking for, and you can narrow it down to those that have that blue to white color. Mm. Now the thing is, there can be some other spirals that are not lensed or not part of this lens, which have that same color. But at least you can narrow it down, and uh, that's that's something we're going to be doing next. Finally, I'd shown it to Richard Griffiths at uh, University of Hawaii, and uh, he said. You know, that is kind of interesting. I was just telling him about the problem. And he looked at it and said, well, you know what? I, I can get time on the Keck telescope uh, in Hawaii there. And it has an, an um, integral field unit or integral field spectrograph. And this is a kind of camera where every pixel is a spectrograph. And so you get a spectrum for every pixel in the image. Okay. This is a relatively, I mean, in my career, it's come up since I was, uh, since I'd started work. Uh, this is a relatively new technique, new technology, which is just fantastic. Because imagine you've got a picture and you've got a spectrum for everything in the picture. That's neat. So it's not an either or thing there. There's still trade-offs. I mean, you don't get your image resolution may be worse. It may be kind of big blocky pixels or your spectral resolution may be poor where it's just kind of basic color information. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've always got to trade off on how many pixels you devote to image and how many you devote to a spectrum there, but fantastic stuff. So anyway, um, He'd looked at it. He'd gotten a little bit more. He's got a student who's working on modeling this thing. Uh, If you take a look at where all the galaxies in the cluster are and you see how bright they are, you get an estimate of their mass. This is going back around to your dark matter question. Then you can get an idea of how much mass is where, the Mm -hmm. the distribution of the mass in the cluster. Mm -hmm. And by knowing that, you can make a... With general relativity, you can make a model, three-dimensional, really kind of two-dimensional model of how much light will bend coming from the distant background as it goes through the cluster. And this is called a lensing map. 
And I think um, the guys who do this, they might refer to a magnification map, like every pixel here. How much will an object in the background be magnified if you look through it at this point? And so the clusters do this weird stuff. And what Anton had got, gotten us on, I'm sure now, the right path by saying that the clusters gave, give these weird shapes. You get these cusps in... Uh, ah, okay, take a look. If you've got a... If you take a, a, gla a wine glass or a kind that's got a stem and it flares out to the base mm -hmm. and you shine light through that, you just take a, uh, you take a light and you look through it as the light shines down through the base onto the, onto the table, you will see that is a very good model for a spherically symmetrical galaxy as a gravitational lens. Okay. It is a physical lens that imitates the gravitational lens of a round galaxy. Gotcha. Well, that's actually pretty good there. In fact, um, Chris Impey, Chris Impey, who is mm -hmm. a gravitational lens guy, uh, I believe a Christian as well, and he has uh, he was showing us at a at a quasar meeting about you know this you know this wine glass here. This is just almost perfect for doing this. So when we've occasionally had some broken uh, stemware, I've saved the bases on those. And then uh, round them off then so I can use those in demonstrations. It's Neat. Great. Well, anyway, if, you, um, if you've got the, if you've got the cluster, all right, uh, uh, so if you have a light coming from an angle towards that, you'll wind up seeing kind of um, way, a wave shape coming to a peak where there's bright lines of light with shadow right around it. And... There's a whole field called catastrophe theory that I only vaguely remember. Uh, but I think that you get to a point where, those, where you get that sharp turn, which may be the cusp. Of okay. It. Well, anyway, if you get this kind of stuff coming through the cluster, you get points where uh, places in the cluster where a distant background object will not be magnified in a regular way. It'll be stretched out in a very high magnification, but just irregularly enough where we can get these parallel lines or nearly parallel lines. You mentioned that there, now that you're pointing it out, yeah, that does have a little arc. Mm -hmm. um, and you can get kind of the, the ripple pattern where we see now we've got it. It's symmetrical in two different directions at once. Yes, yes. Right? And so it, that's where you get this, I'm going to say cusp, I might be wrong on it. Um, but it's very difficult to do that modeling. So anyway, that's why I'm glad Richard has a student who's doing that. And yeah, because it, like, well. it looks like, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert in this. Absolutely not. But it looks like the two light, the headlights, if you will, the two centerpieces yeah. are, are identical in are mirror images mm -hmm. of one another. Mirror image, they, yeah. They're mirror yeah. images. And they have that slight, they're not perfect no. around. They've got a little feather off they to the do, side, right? They do, and they seem to have some kind of filament between them. Uh, in a kind of, uh, there's a kind of geometrical shape behind them as well. So obviously this yeah. is one, this would be one lensed object, as you say. But then well, I... Probably, there could, there there could, could be, be two objects sure. close together that are... Yeah, and it looks like... It's hard it, to tell. But is it possible we're looking at two... You can't tell with the data that, that we're looking at one cluster doing a lens or... Uh, several clusters lensing this similar object. Or uh, we've got a very little bit of information on the galaxies in the cluster. So there's a, a project called the Sloan Digital Sky yes. Survey. It runs out uh -huh. of a telescope called the Apache uh, Point Observatory in Arizona. And its goal is to map out, it was the probably the first large 
sky survey done with all digital from the beginning with digital cameras. Uh, there had been the sky of, there was the all sky survey. I forget the original names done back from in mid 20th century and on that were done using glass plate negatives. And that ran up through, I think the beginning of the nineties, still using the glass plates because they'd started doing it. You want to, you don't want to change technology halfway through. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so in the nineties, they started doing this with digital cameras when that got to be feasible. Well, the Sloan, um, has a little bit of this cluster in it. And while they don't have a spectrum of the galaxies in the cluster for us to tell the redshifts, you can estimate the redshifts from the color. Mm. If, you, if you get, uh, the Sloan uses five different color filters. So we have five different wavelengths at which we can uh, measure the brightness of the galaxies. And if you know what kind of galaxy it is, is it elliptical or spiral or how old are the, are the stars in it? then you expect it to have a certain distribution of color. And so you can estimate the redshift photometrically, meaning by looking at the colors in the photograph. So that's called a photometric redshift. It's less precise, but we do get a rough idea. This is at a redshift of about 0.5 or so for the cluster, if I remember right. And because of the variation in the, in the photometric redshift, there could, I mean, there could be two clusters that are close in redshift, but right now it really looks like there's one. But the clusters can have very complex shapes. They're not like these globular clusters of stars yeah. that are very spherical, round, and compact, and, and very smooth in appearance. These are irregular, a lot more space. So if I understand galaxy clusters, to some extent, the larger they get, they're called walls or filaments to some degree. They're more like strings in structure they yes. can be so this is called the large scale structure of the universe and so um so galaxy clusters could be string shaped or cloud shaped or- oh, at that point we really call, we we call it a different thing we've got clusters we have super clusters you know clusters of clusters and then you've got beyond that you have the large scale structure but yeah i mean in, in layman's terms it is it is a cluster of galaxies or a cluster of clusters of galaxies mm. at that point and <laughs> Now, but the, the, the gravitational lensing of the large-scale structure, which does have this filamentary shape mm-hmm. across the – these are the largest structures in the, in, in the universe that right. we know of uh, that make a kind of a spider web yes. uh, across yes. it. I tell you the truth, it looks kind of like the uh, electron uh, microscope views of nerve Right, cells that's what I was going to say. Yeah, exactly. I've other. seen those large-scale pictures that you – In that name. Um, those do do gravitational lensing, but I believe that they do it on a, they don't do it as strongly as this because they are lower density mm. than a cluster itself. So a cluster of galaxies is a high density, ma- high mass density region, whereas the large scale structure is a bigger structure. It's got a lot more total mass, but it's spread out more. And so it's, it's on average a bit lower density than a galaxy cluster would I be. See. And so the lensing would be weaker, but it would show up. In, I believe, again, I'm not, not quite in my, my field here. Uh, I think it would show up in like the uh, cosmic microwave background and other things would show some amount of lensing at that point. Mm. Um, I'm not completely sure on what scale, but I think that's probably close to mm. it. Now this, so this particular lens, as we're pretty convinced it is now, I, I still like ooing and aahing over it. Okay. <laughs> um, 
And, and finding it, by the way, I, I don't want to make myself out too much. Finding it was just dumb luck. It happened to be in the picture, and I was just br- br- browsing through. So that, that did not take skill. It just took <laughs> looking at in the background and, and following up on it. But um, uh, so what is it good for, though? Well, a neat thing is, beyond being able to help us understand the structure of this gravitational, uh, this, this galaxy cluster in the foreground, the fact that the cluster magnifies, it, it, it distorts, but it also magnifies that distant background galaxy. Mm. It literally magnifies it, which means that stuff within the galaxy that would have been too small to make out, now maybe we can see. Yeah. It's distorted, though. So what we've got to do is, uh, this is where uh, Richard's part of the team at, uh, in Hawaii is working on it with the model of the, cl- of the galaxy cluster. If they can get the model right, we can undistort the image and reconstruct what that galaxy really looks like. Oh, wow. And we'll have parts of it that are magnified bigger. And so, um, who knows, maybe we'll be able to tell with some follow-on data. Uh, we, we got some time on the kick a few weeks ago, and he said we got good data out of that there. That's so good. I'm eager to see. We got, uh, I think, a couple, of, a couple more filters. So, you know, us. it could be, too, I'm thinking of this odd shape as I'm looking at this picture as well, and I'm thinking this could have been a, a galaxy in the shape of one of the ARP galaxies. Just we've caught a peculiar one in a peculiar lens, giving us a peculiar shape. It could be. <laughs> That's really neat. It's really cool. So ARP and ARP had, had um, this, I, I like his catalog of, I uh, forget what's called, catalog of unusual galaxies yes. or whatever. Yes. Um, and um, to go through and just find, let's find all the things that look weird. Right, exactly. Right, I, I would love I would love to have that as like part of my legacy. I found a bunch of weird galaxies, and here's a list of. That's what you need to do, Tim. Your <laughs> your uh, your thing to do now is to uh, to 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 do ARP, but you're going to do weird lensing. I, I think at this point there's going to be a little bit of a race on that. It, it is um, that people have been thinking about precisely okay. that, uh, which is why there is some I think some some new interest in this cluster because of this weird lens. Well, it's been, Tim, I, I, we're over time here a little bit, uh, but I've enjoyed it. And I'm just like, it's so worth just hearing you talk about what you love and this, this wonderful discovery that you've made with somebody that I've actually met and worked with a little bit. Um, yes, yes. Very exciting. And uh, I so appreciate your time. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking with you, Dan, and I really appreciate the invitation oh, yeah. it's, uh, to, come on the, to come on the show here. It's wonderful. And so I thought I'd give you just a, another couple of minutes to, to wrap up and, and, and maybe, and no. you don't have to, you know, have the definitive thought on this, but, but combining your, your faith and, and, and what we talked about with miracles and, and your understanding of God and, mm-hmm. um, and what you do with in your astrophysical field, uh, this, this little discovery, you told me on Twitter, you were kind of uh, elated that one of your colleagues was calling it tentatively Hamilton's object. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. And that, it's one of those things that my ego will... Uh, <laughs> so we won't... If, if anybody else uses that yeah, term, you're gonna which be... I'm not exactly counting on, my ego will be uh, uh, too... You know, I'll be impossible to oh, live no, with, I'm okay. sure. Um, but it, it's, it's one of those things that I, I will not be able to call it that <laughs> for sure. Uh, but I will be perfectly happy if somebody else That's did. That's great. I mean, there's like Bode's yeah. object and you know, right, all, right. somebody else's object and so on. And I'd always kind of wanted something like Hamilton's object. This is the closest thing I could get, but someone else will have to do that. Well, I always say you what watch out for what you pray for, you know, you astronomer you you're going to have something named after you after a while. 
Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I'll have a lot of colleagues who are saying, oh, oh come on, Tim. Tim. He's going around with that Hamilton object on, there. Tim, that- really? But uh, how do you, I mean, I see this as, I was so excited for you to tell me about this. I was just, I'm like a kid in a candy store with this kind of stuff as well. But it does seem like a gift to you. I mean, you know, and that's the wonderful thing about knowing the Lord of the universe or having him know us, that he gives us these, these gifts of discovery and delight. I mean, you get Nobel prizes in physics and science just for discovering things about creation. Right. You know? Right, and right. so uh, I can't imagine that this, this must be, it's hard to describe, but I bet this is like super exciting beyond what people can understand when you make a discovery like this. Uh, yes, it, it really is. And this is what <clears throat> I think that even though partly it was a matter of me not doing well in another field, particle physics, um, that, brought me into astronomy uh you know i I was telling you i I kind of i've got a narrative on how i got into astronomy Mm -hmm. right you know parents taking me out into the field and then we got to look at the stars but in some ways i it was like i had stumbled into it uh because of the uh uh, because of the the career taking different directions but um you know there may be a guiding hand behind that <laughs> your stumbling is uh, uh is uh you know a man plans his way but the lord directs his steps. i have i have gotten into a niche which is probably the field that make you know like i said about you look at some of these pictures and your hair stands on in thinking about my goodness what are you actually looking right. at you're looking back five billion years into the past at something that doesn't even exist anymore and it is fascinating. It is fascinating because it reminds me of Jesus in a, in a way because you're, you're looking at ancient light. Right. But yet there it is meeting your own two eyes, you know, the, whether mm-hmm. you're mediating it through a telescope or whatever, but that you have this light that is literally somewhat transcendent in terms of light distance, if you will. But, but, but then yes. again, it's right yes. there with us as the photons enter our eyeballs. It's right. It's here. We can see it. The thing that I'm studying, I'm examining, I'm, I'm taking pictures of, it even there or it looks very, very different billions of years later. And yet we're able to right. see it. We're able right. to do this. And to think of how that with the scale of what creation is and the complexity of it, to think that we're actually able to understand it, even in some limited way, you know, think about how we are created to be discoverers in that yes. way. Yeah. And, and something which I still, I don't have a good definitive field with predestination and free sure. will and other things like sure. this. You know, exactly what do I think we are? How do we, how much is planned out? How much do we have the ability to change things? How much is not deterministic, but God's got the plan that we are following in some way mm-hmm. there. Um, and to think about when you look at this this kind of a, this deep time again, and the idea of general relativity, which is a very deterministic theory. My wife works in general relativity, which is very good for a Presbyterian. <laughs> and so, <laughs> if you start off with these initial conditions, this is inevitably what will come right. from it. Okay. Then you got quantum mechanics, which is your 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 ultimate free will there kind you of go. theory, right? Or, or yeah. undetermined, indeterminate yeah. theory. Uh-huh. How does that stuff even work together? Uh, can God have an ultimate plan for things without every individual step uh, forcibly guided? Or is there some, there's maybe some way of reconciling that that's beyond, uh, right now, beyond our understanding. And I should throw out a, a shout out here to David Snoke, who is a, uh, 
is a solid state physicist and who is a lay minister in, in my wife's church from when we were back in Pittsburgh. And he was one of my professors when I was a grad student and is a great guy, uh, but he's written whole books on, uh, on science and religion and so on like this there. But um, I've had just some great eye-opening kind of mm. conversations with him on that topic. That's there. wonderful. But I think you've, uh, yeah. I think uh, I'll call it Hamilton's object uh, <laughs> is, uh, is, 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 as you say, Tim, it's, it's part of God's book of nature. And you've, you've right. just discovered right. a page uh, that, that has not been seen before. And, and I should say that this individual page, it's not big in the grand scheme of things. This isn't, I mean, I'll, we'll get a, a paper or two out of it, but it's not going to revolutionize anything. But it is. It's, it's one more page. Every galaxy, every cluster, every lens, every whatever is, is making this progress on our understanding of things. And sometimes it's not the big glamour stuff that... Uh, uh, you, you, or you don't get, you don't fall into the really big glamorous stuff. Uh, maybe your role is to kind of do something that's a little more anonymous, like this yeah. is, and uh, but it still moves things on. And I, I've got a um, uh, uh, a, uh, a friendly acquaintance, uh, Adam Reese, who uh, I knew from Space Telescope, and he had, as a graduate student at uh, Harvard, he had been in this project to look at measuring the expansion rate of the universe using supernovas. And they started getting data that was showing that, well, they were wondering, well, how much is the universe slowing down as it expands? And they started seeing data that was showing that, well, it's speeding up faster. But they just, they didn't want to publish that because nobody believed the universe was speeding up. What would explain that? And from what I understand is, uh, from, from uh, other colleagues at Space Telescope, is that Adam, had, as a, I think as a grad student, had come in one morning and said, all right, I'm publishing a paper saying that we're we found the universe is accelerating. If you want to join me on it, you can. As a grad student, he doesn't really have a reputation to worry about. Mm. Uh, everybody else is more cautious. And he was right, though. And he winds up sharing the Nobel Prize in uh, 2009 <laughs> for physics for the discovery of dark energy or, well, for the acceleration of the universe, whatever it's causing yeah. it. Now, in a way, he stumbled into that, right? Because it was his, his graduate advisor's project, mm -hmm. right? He's a grad mm -hmm. student. But He's not just resting on his laurels for that then. I mean, when he got that, he is this incredibly motivated person who can take a discovery and can go with that. And so many other people may have thought, that's fantastic. Well, maybe I'll do something else now. But he kept moving that on. And he is, you know, it, it takes not only chance uh, or the opportunities, but making something of those opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, you're onto something. You've discovered a a verse of scripture from the book of nature that uh, has been previously unread. <laughs> um, and that verse, speaking of a verse it, that I had mentioned earlier is Ecclesiastes 311. Ecclesiastes 311. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go take a, a good read on that. Then I, I was fascinated when you had read that one out to me. It had, it, it's, it resonates. It is. It, well, I love that verse. I mean, every time I, I look at something, the, uh, the, the English poet, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, used to go to like science and chemistry lectures just to expand his own poetic vocabulary because, because uh -huh. he believed that, that as people were, were learning and revealing things about nature, uh, that they were brought into having to come up with new and different kinds of metaphors to describe in words to people what has been discovered. And so there's your challenge to put this in words and, and, and be excited about it. Cause it's, it's really cool for me to talk about people that are talk with people that are really excited about what they're doing and, and these discoveries. I mean, this is, this is actually a first for my broadcast because I, I don't think I've ever talked to 
a scientist who's actually just recently discovered something. So this is, this is cool. <laughs> this is really neat. And I appreciate, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing, passionately sharing what you're, what you're all about and the science and, Oh, you're welcome. And uh, I would love to, uh, you know, maybe we could pick up again and we can do a whole episode on galaxies at some point. Oh, I'd love to do yeah, that too. So uh, to we it. could have you as our resident uh, astrophysicists on good heavens. That would be wonderful. <laughs> I appreciate it. I've that. enjoyed it. So uh, final words here and then we'll wrap up. All right. Final words. What does it all mean? What's the general scolium for this here? Uh, <laughs> and I don't have an answer. But, <laughs> it's, uh, but, I, but I will say that the... Um, I think you've said it, I think you said it well that we can look out and see pages and verses of the book of nature, uh, which is written by God just as much as the book of scripture is. And we are discovering how the universe works and what God's handiwork is in it. And uh, we should we should always keep in mind though what what the big picture is. For That's it. it. That is it. God gives us a world uh, to discover. Um, it's like, you know, it's like any good father who wants to give his children gifts. He does so because he loves us. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. and I, I like the earlier medieval thinkers, especially Dante, who didn't look at the uni yes. universe like a clock. They, they looked at it as a, as, a, as a gift of God's love, that it is love that mm -hmm. moves the sun and other stars, you know. And ultimately, I think uh, that that for me is the most moving paradigm that I can think of when you think of, you can think of all the science and the mathematics, and that's all wonderful. I mean, certainly, like, uh, you know, uh, Paul Dirac thought math was beautiful, and there is, there's yes. beauty in the science. I'm not denigrating the science, but I think ultimately behind all that, uh, you know, the, the theory of everything is God is love, you know, and yes. this is an expression yes. of his love. And so discoveries are, I think, expressions of his love, though many people don't recognize it as such. Uh, and so it's been, it's, it's just been exciting to talk to you, Tim, because I see God speaking, God's love, you know, this whole idea of stumbling into something, we get there and we find out, you know, how did we get here? But you see somehow through all, even through your stumbles, this is what you were meant to find. Yes, indeed. That's really good. So Tim, thank you so much. And we'll be in touch through Twitter. Thank you for following me. Um, You're welcome. and, uh, liking all my strange tweets. I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, it's fun. I get a lot of support oh, yes. and prayer. I love Twitter because I can ask people to pray for things. And uh, mm -hmm. you got a lot of good, good people on Twitter that are, are really helpful. There's not, there's a lot of good. I've mostly just been uh, uh, reposting uh, uh, whatever interesting headlines yeah. stuff well, I come across on the astronomy and the space flight. I followed you when I first got on Twitter because of number one, your astrophysics and number two, your uh, Bugs Bunny uh, mad scientist castle graphic <laughs> <laughs> the uh i forget which car which uh, which of the cartoons that was now but i thought it was that's just perfect there with this that's... uh this old castle with the uh the was it, mad, mad yeah. scientist or evil, evil scientist, scientist as a as a flashing neon yes. sign yes. yes which i think honestly if i could get that to uh, uh to blink on my door i would put that on my office door my lair all right but thank you so much for your time and uh spending time with us here on good heavens you're welcome i'm appreciate it. I, I look forward to uh, uh to uh, hearing the next episodes all right tim thank you so much adios i'll talk to you on twitter thanks for listening to another episode of good heavens a production of watchman fellowship incorporated arlington texas for more information about Good Heavens or other topics and podcasts related to apologetics, world religions, and cults, visit Watchman.org today.
For Good Heavens, I'm Dave Mitchell.